I'm David Pope. And I am Christian Silvestri. And this is the Safety Frontiers Podcast. Episode 2, The Evolution of Safety. In the last episode, we discussed how using science as the standard to which we should be assessing anything new in safety, and we mapped out a path within which we intend to discuss the latest thinking about safety. It's fair to say we believe in legitimate science, not junk science. But how do you tell them apart? Well, using the scientific method is how. That is repeatability, reproducibility, and predictability. Let me put it this way. If you can repeat the work and get the same outcome, then that meets the main test for science. Alternatively, if you repeat the work and get a different outcome, then it fails the main test for science and is likely to be junk science. Unfortunately, some can make junk science seem like legitimate science easily enough until someone comes along and asks the question about repeatability. Then they either produce the data or the studies or the paper, or they end up blocking anyone who poses the question about repeatability. I'll ask you, ever had that experience? I know I have. Now to this episode, where we'll journey back in time and put together, from our experience, the evolution of safety thinking. Importantly, we'll pause along the way and we'll ask questions about why. Why did safety evolve this way and what's the evidence for this? Okay, Christian, I know you've done a lot of research about this topic because I've read your book. And I know in your book, you discuss how the real changes came about in the 80s. Maybe that's where we should start. Thanks, David. The first job that I ever had, I was stacking shelves during the night shift at a nearby supermarket in the early 80s. Safety ever mentioned to me? Absolutely not. I remember going in one night after uh, having a strenuous game of squash with a bit of a sore back, and my boss was concerned. He wasn't concerned about my safety. He was concerned about the stacking rate. His concern was, was I going to be an asset or a hindrance to the team that night? Yeah, and that, that's true of us, of many of us now in our 50s you know, who have had similar experiences in our first jobs back in the 80s, of course. So um, when, 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 did you, when do you think things started to change? Well, the first time I remember anyone doing anything in the name of safety was in the late 80s. And by then, I was in manufacturing. Safety legislation came out a few years earlier to address the worst of hazards. And I was working on guard machinery to prevent people losing fingers or worse. Yeah, yeah. Look, that, that resonates strongly with me because I, I remember as a teenager helping my dad in his, in his tiny business installing those electric eye guards uh, in, in those big, big paper, paper um, guillotines. They always scared me, those things, and I was constantly amazed why anyone would put their hands anywhere near, near those blades. Well, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. As silly as it seems, people do put fingers and sometimes other parts of the bodies in places where they shouldn't. Now, for me, if you're going to do one thing about safety, let it be taking out the hazard out of the game. However, where I was working, we soon realised we couldn't guard everything. To address the remaining hazards, we started having training sessions to let people know about them and what they could do to avoid contact. This was based on the premise that if people knew what hazard could hurt you, 
and how to avoid contact, then they would not have an incident. If only that was true 100% of the time. Correct. So we, re we referred to this approach as first-generation safety because it was the first wave of how to introduce controls to the game of safety management. And it led to safety management systems and a focus on compliance. And first-generation safety was a huge step forward for safety, but people were still having incidents. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's important to remember how much of an improvement now that first generation safety was. But like everything in life, you know, it, it can and should be improved. What was the next piece in this, in, this, in this safety puzzle, Christian? So by the 1990s, we had eliminated many hazards, made the workplace much safer, and our safety management system was working really well. But people were still having incidents, not as many as before. We started to notice people had unfortunate habits when it came to their own safety. They just weren't thinking enough about their own safety. David, did you ever try to introduce a PPE policy like eye or hearing protection? I remember once I tried to introduce a long sleeves policy when I was working in Indonesia where it is hot all year round. The amount of pushback that I got was, was second to none, one would say. Although these get introduced for good reason, there is always pushback for change. To get people thinking more about their own safety, we started talking to them about how important safety was. And we asked people to you know, think safety, put safety first, or keep safety front of mind to make safety more conscious. We did this through leadership, observations, or coaching conversations by using the social studies of the day. Yeah, that, that, that's particularly interesting, right? You know, it's interesting how safety moved away from hazards uh, to also focus on the person. You know, what were they thinking? How were they feeling? The obvious academic field of study to get involved there is uh, social studies and, and psychology, right? Um, but from your perspective, what did this field of study discover? Well, as you would expect from the social studies, the toolkit that came up with was rather limited. Yeah. It only ever yeah. had five things in it. Now, the five things, as far as I could tell, was either a focus on care and trust, that was one of them, safety yep. as a value, so we've sort of heard yep, people heard talk about that over the years. Yep. Exactly. Um, you know, you have to have commitment to safety. The quality of relationships, that's, especially in teams, that seems to be one that's sort of floating around at the moment. And I've also yep. seen some that have about a sense of belonging to the team. So all yeah. those five things from time to time come up, depending on you know, what's going on at, at the particular time. Now, this approach was based on the premise that if people knew how important safety was, because someone cared or they were trusted or some of the other things, they would keep themselves safe. If only that was true 100% of the time. By the way, these five things are still all social studies can offer. So one or the other keeps getting rehashed every once in a while. Now, this was the second wave of thinking in safety. And that's why we refer to this approach as second generation safety. It led to a huge rise in conversations about safety and a focus on safety is a choice. And led to the appearance of behavioural-based safety, much to the disdain of social study advocates today. Yeah, look, just on that, it's, you know, it's funny how behavioural-based safety was modelled on, on many of those theories from the academics at the time, 
But today, it seems to be ridiculed by by the the new view, and you know, and the same sort of from the same academic field you know, working in safety. It's incredible. Yep. Well, you, yeah. I mean, I've I've seen that as well. The bottom line is the second generation safety was a small step forward for safety. Interestingly, though, people were still having incidents even after using second generation safety for years. So, you know, we've heard this many times. Keeping safety front of mind prevents incidents. If safety could be kept front of mind constantly, people would always be thinking about safety. From my perspective, the problem is, you know, we're biologically wired not to do this, especially when we are doing what we are doing is familiar or very routine, which is most of the things people do most of the time. Since we now know most of our actions come from subconscious processes rather than those conscious keeping safety front of mind, how can we use this knowledge to improve safety? Most organisations that approach us for help typically ask this question or or a question like this one. Um, What they say to us is this, we've already done all we can to eliminate as many hazards as possible. We're already training people within an inch of their lives. We have a good safety management system and we're addressing behaviour through numerous safety conversations. Yet, we're still having incidents. What else is there? Now, I always reply with a question of my own, and it tends to be the same question every single time. The question is, what assumption are you making about behaviour that is causing a lack of improvement? David, do you know what that assumption might be? I think I do. Is the assumption that all behaviour is conscious? Correct. So, look, the problem with the assumption that all behaviour is conscious is that neuroscientists estimate that 95% of what we do originates in the subconscious and is enacted through skills and habits. If we deal with safety-related behaviour as all conscious, we are working on just 5% of the behaviour and leaving 95% of the potential improvement on the table. And even if we might be able to get it to 10% or 15 or even 25 as a stretch, we are still leaving a lot on the table. Now, although no one disputes the power of the subconscious through skills and habits because it's legitimate science, just about all effort in safety to date is directed to do one or more of three things. So people tend to focus when they're doing safety, either fix the environment or eliminate the hazard if you like, improve the system or make safety more conscious. In other words, safety efforts to date have always landed on the first or second generation safety view of the world. Isn't that interesting? The audacity to call it the new view of safety. So Christian, what's next? The next wave of thinking in safety has to break away from first and second generation thinking without throwing anything away. That's an important bit. We need to be grateful for what got us here, while at the same time realise that to continue to improve, we also need something else. Okay, but but before we get into what else we need to do to improve safety, I just want to explore safety a little bit more widely, a little bit more broadly. We've spoken about first first generation and second generation, but typically only in a work situation. I'm interested in safety everywhere, just as I know you are, at work certainly, but also on the road, at home, everywhere else. 
have you done any research in safety away from the work situation, Christian? Yes, yes, I have, David. I dug up some data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics and crunched the numbers, um, and I was looking at accidental fatalities at work, on the road and elsewhere. What do you think is the ratio of accidental fatalities outside work compared to those at work? What would you guess, David? Uh, ratios, look, I'll, I'll have a stab at 10 to 1. All right, look, for, for 2018 and 2019, when I last did this, it was more like 23 to 1. Sorry, 23 people died from accidents outside of work for every fatality at work. Is that what you're telling me? And I did not include all people who might have died from a fall. Otherwise, it would have been more like 35 to 1. So interestingly, right, it's a similar ratio for disabling injuries, severe injuries, and other type of injuries as well. And not much different in other Mm. developed countries either. The US is close to 40 to 1. Last time I did it a few years back, Okay. So so what you're telling me is it's safer to be at work than outside of work? <laughs> well, you know, the data doesn't lie. And it has been a trend yeah. that has been repeated year on year during the last 10 years. So tell me, yeah. how can it be that when there is so much more hazardous energy at work, you know, there are less incidents and less fatalities? What do we have at work that we don't have outside? Uh, good question. Well, we have rules, we have procedures, we have safety conversations, um, you know, all of those things that, you know, that make up what, what I think we'd call now the safe system of work. At work, we have the safe system of work. Have you ever known of or experienced a failure in the system? Oh, yes, yeah, from time to time. Yeah, systems aren't perfect by any means. Systems aren't perfect because they can't cover every eventuality. So what keeps people safe when the system fails? Themselves. Right. And that is a function of how much attention they were paying at the time the system failed. So at work, the first line of defence against getting hurt is the safe system of work, which is a good thing to have. The second line of defence is how good you are at paying attention. Now, what about outside work? What keeps people safe then? Well... Um, we know there isn't a safe system of work at home. There are there are road rules, I suppose, but I guess it's it's mostly ourselves. I think you know, me, it, it's the individual. So I would say mostly themselves. I think that's right. It's mostly ourselves, and that is a function of how good people are at paying attention in general. So outside work, the first and often the only line of defence is how good people are at paying. Attention. Yeah. Now, the, now, the 23 to 1 ratio tells me that we're not very good. If no. we were, the ratio would be much be lower. A lot less, that's right. Yeah. So have you ever been trained at work on how inattention comes about and what can be done to minimise it? Not at all. Mainly because, you know, inattention is you know, mostly subconscious or, or habit-related. And remembering that safety assumes all behaviour is is conscious. So, you know, short answer is no, I haven't. Well, there's some really fascinating signs coming out about this. So we thought, looking at the brain from the outside in using social studies, that attention was only ever conscious. Neuroscientists have measured the type this type of attention. It's referred to as top-down attention or goal-directed attention. 
But neuroscientists have also measured other types of attention which are used by people much more often. And this is referred to as bottom-up attention or, if you like, habitual attention. So most people think we pay attention according to risk or the amount of hazardous energy or what's important to us. And sometimes we do, but not as often as we think we do. What we pay attention to the most is what we have conditioned ourselves to pay attention to through repetition. And that is not always the safest thing to do. So these days, we know much more happens in the subconscious that we are not aware of. Do we continue to disregard the subconscious because it happens in the background? Or do we start using this newfound knowledge to help people be safer? Fantastic question. And and what you've just you know, talked about sounds fascinating. I think um, let's explore that at a, in a future podcast. But I just want to finish off the discussion on safety everywhere and this, this 23 to 1 ratio. First generation safety and second generation safety help reduce incidents at work. They are good to have. But 23 out of the 24 incidents are not at work. Do we not care about that? Yeah, I guess the way safety is practiced, you know, would suggest we don't care. Um, you know, how can anyone claim they care if, you know, if they're only helping to address the one in every 24, you know, 23 to 24 incidents at best? So safety people I've had conversations with have told me that many employees take first and second generation home. So I asked them, as the safety custodian at your workplace, do you have a fully documented, up-to-date and audited safety management system at home? <laughs> <laughs> have you found anyone yet, surprise, Christian? Surprise. <laughs> Not one yet. And I also asked them, have you ever tried to do a safety observation on your better half? Now, they don't have to answer this one because I know they haven't. And I know they haven't because they are still alive. Good luck with that. Exactly. Correct. I guess you can tell yourself whatever you like, but when the main advocate of safety at work does not take first and second generation home for the people they care about the most, I think it's pretty safe to assume no one else does either. So let me ask you another question that hits home for participants when we do training. The people you care about, are they in the 23 or are they in the one? Oh, I, I know mine are in the 23, totally. What do others say? That's what most people say, they are in the 23. And because no one takes first and second generation home, most people don't get anything to help the people they care about. They don't get anything to help them with the 23. Now, I'm good that we're helping them with the one. I'm just going to ask him questions about what do we do about the 23. So imagine how devastated your family would be if something bad happened to you. Would it matter to them if it was at work or elsewhere? Not one bit. It wouldn't matter where. Um, you know, they wouldn't want it to happen anywhere. Now, also imagine how devastated you would be if something bad happened to them. Now, we know that first and second generation safety are good at work, but we need something that can be used 24-7 as well. If you were given the opportunity to upgrade your skills and habits to safer ones and you could go home and teach it to those you care about, would you do it? Definitely. And most people would, right? So people we train can't wait to take it home and teach to those they care about, making them better users of the techniques in the process. So the bottom line is we need a new way of thinking about safety that doesn't throw out first and second generation, but can add to whatever is already in place and help us improve safety everywhere, 
not just at work. Now, this new way of thinking also needs to be simple enough and easy to use. So we can take it home and get the people we care about to use it as well. That, to me, sounds like third-generation safety, Christian. That's what we refer to it, third-generation safety. What comes after first and second? Let's, let's talk about that in detail next time. Look, I'd be happy to do that. Thank you for sharing all of that knowledge and, and thank you to all. That concludes the podcast. Thanks for joining us. In the next podcast, we will discuss third-generation safety and dive into more detail of what Christian has just talked about, explore a new way of thinking that can get us to the next level of safety performance. It will also help us to maximize the effectiveness of first and second generation safety and can be taken home to help those we care about be safer. Hope you can join us then. 